The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 25th, 2023. On November 18th, in an editorial in the Washington Post, President Joe Biden wrote, quote, a two-state solution is the only way to ensure the long-term security of both the Israeli and Palestinian people. Though right now it may seem like that future has never been further away, this crisis has made it more imperative than ever. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from May 18th, 2018, in which Scott R. Anderson sat down with Khaled El-Gindi, Natan Sachs, and Sarah Yerkes to discuss the controversial opening of the American embassy in Jerusalem, protests along the border with the Gaza Strip, and the Israeli government's harsh response. I'm Scott Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th, 2018. The past week saw the culmination of a major shift in U.S. policy as the United States formally opened its embassy in Jerusalem. Yet ongoing protests along the border with the Gaza Strip and the Israeli government's harsh response have provided a sharp contrast to the hopeful rhetoric surrounding the embassy's opening ceremony. To sort through the headlines, I spoke this week to Khaled Al-Gindi, a Brookings fellow and a former advisor to the Palestinian leadership, Natan Sachs, another Brookings expert in Israeli politics and a native Jerusalemite, and Sarah Yerkes, a former U.S. State Department official now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 313, The Jerusalem Embassy Opening and Protests in Gaza. Natan, I want to turn to you. Give us a little bit of historical context about what the embassy opening means uh, for the city of Jerusalem and for the relationship between the United States, the Israelis, and the Palestinians. Well, to a certain degree, this um, corrects uh, what Israelis at least see as sort of a very long hypocrisy. This is one of the few cases that don't relate to 1967, which many people turn to as kind of the origin of the occupation, certainly, nor even to 1948, the creation of Israel, but actually to November 1947, the decision on the partition of what was then British Palestine to a Jewish state and an Arab state. And that decision had uh, Jerusalem as part of a corpus separatum, a separate area that was to be not part of either of those uh, states. Since the end of that war in 1949, 
almost no country recognized the reality of the end of the war, which had the city split between Jordan and the eastern part, including the whole old city, and Israel in the west part of, of the city. And some some countries recognized East Jerusalem, the Jordanian part, and had embassies there. But um, but by and large, the world re- maintained that this 1947 decision was still in place until something replaced it, and therefore the Jerusalem was, uh, as a total, Jerusalem, West Jerusalem included, was contested or in question. Today, this embassy move now for Israelis uh, does a few things, and herein lies exactly the problem. For some, this is recognition of a united Jerusalem that is Israeli, and for others, it is at, at the very least a correction of the historical actual context, which is recognizing at least West Jerusalem as Israeli, recognizing that Israel can exist in the pre-1967 borders, uh, something which is not really obvious, and certainly for Israelis, there's a lot of insecurity around that. When President Trump spoke about the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, it was very uncharacteristic of Trump. It was a very careful speech. It had a lot of nuance to it. He clearly was reading a text that was written by someone else, probably Jason Greenblatt. And the text was very careful not to mention a united Jerusalem, not to mention East Jerusalem, and in fact positively stated that the borders, I'm paraphrasing here, but that the borders would be decided in negotiations leaving open, um, in a very real sense, uh, leaving open the possibility of a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem. Problem is, of course, that everyone heard that, and very few people understood the background or thought this is not about East Jerusalem, where the old city lies, uh, and thought that Trump simply took Jerusalem off the table. It didn't help that he later tweeted, I took Jerusalem off the table. Uh, when he said that, though, he said, I took, or he tweeted that, I took Jerusalem off the table, and but I would have demanded something of the Israelis. So in theory, he left open the possibility. But in short, your question, the, the context here is really something that predates occupation, is not really about East Jerusalem, and therefore for Israelis is this glaring both hypocrisy and delegitimization, not of the occupation, not of East Jerusalem, but the possibility of Israel existing in pre-67 borders. Now, for international lawyers listening, I'm, I'm a lawyer for many of us, the really important decision was the December decision that President Trump made, where he said, "We, I'm acknowledging Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem, although the territorial boundaries were left ambiguous in the way you describe. Um, yet there's a very big symbolic resonance of the actual embassy move. There's still a lot of people agitating for it, pushing to have it scheduled. Uh, and it seems to have gotten a lot more media attention and the focus of a lot of other parties. Why is the embassy move versus the declaration of, of U.S. policy, which would be the legally significant move, why is the symbolic embassy move so important to so many supporters of uh, you know, Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem? Well, it's a combination of two things. The first is that the president's declaration from December to a certain degree repeated American law from the 90s, which already had necessitated actually the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, it gave the president's waiver and they signed it every six months, uh, the waiver. So all presidents since the 90s did that until Trump. He was the first one to actually fulfill campaign promises. They had all made the same campaign promise. And he, like he likes to say, made the promise and he kept it not to sign that waiver. And so to Sunergay, it was that. It was, this was actually the act that was missing. The second is simply it is, it's a physical move. You can actually see it. And in Jerusalem, it's, it's a, Israel's a very small place. In Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the embassies are very obvious in Tel Aviv and very absent in Jerusalem. Uh, there were a few Central American ones way back when. Uh, now there are one or two that have, have followed the American uh, lead. But to have the American embassy of all things in Jerusalem uh, is a major issue. Uh, and one last point is, and it, I think it 
it emphasizes sort of the hypocrisy or the odd the odd reality that we were in before. The idea that West Jerusalem should be Israeli in the long term is not contested. If you think of every American Secretary of State or President, indeed the President of Egypt, Sadat, when he came to speak to Israelis in 1977, he came to Jerusalem and he spoke at the Knesset in Israel because that is, in fact, where the government of Israel operates from, with the exception of the Ministry of Defense. It's what Israelis consider to be their capital. It is, in all intents and purposes, West Jerusalem is the Israeli capital. And since the PLO itself has basically accepted that as the end result of a two-state solution, um, the mere fact that this would be the capital of Israel, although very important, is less uh, dramatic than I think than the actual physical movement or really the placing of a plaque on a building that belonged to the American consulate. Now, uh, you mentioned that there were a number of other embassies at one point in Jerusalem. Um, and my recollection is that in 1980, uh, after the Israeli parliament passed a basic law, basically asserting a broader sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem, uh, that there was a UN Security Council resolution, I think 478, uh, which encouraged a number of countries to relocate their embassies out of the city, in part as a, a protest move to this move on the part of the Israelis as an effort to sustain this sort of neutrality policy. Um, should we be seeing this United States move back as a rollback of that effort, of that kind of still standing UN policy, at least in the regards to the UN Security Council resolution, although I'm not sure that provision is considered legally binding necessarily, uh, you know, or are other countries following the lead of the United States? Is this is this breaking down that norm or is it simply an exception to a norm that's otherwise remaining more or less in place? It's hard to say at the moment. It seems mostly like an exception to the norm. And if, if you look at uh, the European stance, for example, and many others, it's been very uh, contrary to the American one. The, the ones that have followed the American lead have really been Guatemala and possible you know, other Latin American countries. Um, but none of the major powers, certainly none of the P5 and, or the European countries, um, there's been hints here and there that one European country might do it, but there's been disagreements within those countries. So to a certain degree, this is a dramatic exception to the rule, and it's very Trumpian in that sense. It's sort of this bold, I will do whatever I want, no matter what the norm is. The power of it sometimes, and I think it's true in domestic politics true too, is that with sort of with this bold move, you can sometimes expose what was in fact an hypocrisy, I think. Um, and that gives it some kind of credence, at least in this context. But of course, I'll add one more thing, which is part of the reason so so many respond to this so so unfavorably, and including in Israel, why so many were not necessarily pushing this on, although they support it in, in retrospect, is that when you touch Jerusalem, when you touch anything, the status quo in that city, you're you're playing with fire. So there are a lot of hypocrisies that go on all the time. The most famous one is a ladder that sits on a ledge uh, of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in the old city of Jerusalem. It's been there for many, many decades, in fact, a couple of centuries. And the reason is that uh, two denominations, two Christian denominations in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher can't agree on who uh, actually controls that ledge. And so the best way to keep the peace is to just keep that ladder there. And there's wisdom in that. And this is certainly not, this decision certainly flies in the face of that. Sarah, let me turn to you. Now, Natan mentioned one of the kind of oddities of this most recent development, which is that when President Trump made the declaration in December, he said, we are, or perhaps it was Secretary Tillerson at the time who said, we are starting a process of moving the U.S. Embassy. But the time was anticipated to take months, if not years, selecting a new site, building a new facility. 
All that is still on the table. Uh, yet at some point in the interval, the Trump administration settled upon this other plan uh, where they're essentially taking the existing U.S. consulate building in Jerusalem uh, and redesignating it the U.S. embassy, moving the ambassadors, facilities there, his office, maybe some personal staff. But most of U.S. diplomatic operations seem to be staying in Tel Aviv. What should we attribute this change in position to so quickly? And what does it tell us about the United States approach and view towards this set of issues and this broader situation? So first of all, I think the reason that Trump is doing this now and that he did this way he did is for domestic U.S. reasons. There's absolutely no reason in the U.S.-Israel relationship and the greater peace process for sure to do this the way he's doing it and to do it now. There's nothing that he's getting from this, and we can get into this a bit more in our discussion. Um, but I think, you know, he's looking at the need to sort of increase his his domestic support from certain c- constituencies that he's looking for more funding. Um, and so he's doing everything that, that they want him to do. Um, but I think we also need to sort of understand this is a symbolic measure. I mean, as you mentioned, the ambassador, first of all, the U.S. ambassador has been mostly operating out of Jerusalem, out of his hotel suite for the most part. He hasn't really been in Tel Aviv that much anyway. So it's not a huge difference for him to be operating now out of this facility instead of out of um, a hotel room, I guess. But the idea that most, the vast majority of the staff are going to stay in Tel Aviv means it's mostly symbolic. You have a plaque now, which you didn't have before. And this plaque does have meaning. Um, but I think for the most part, again, it's cons- it's basically confirmed this domestic position that he's had. It's confirmed the absolute unabashed pro-Israel position of this administration. And at the beginning, you mentioned this idea of this split screen. I think even though the Gaza protests did not really have um, direct you know, connection to the embassy move, the imagery, I mean, when you saw these two pictures together, whether on Twitter, on the front page of the New York Times, of people being killed in Gaza and Ivanka in a white suit standing there in front of the new U.S. embassy, that's incredibly meaningful. Uh, And I think it just that's U.S. policy right there. The United States under this administration has lots of love for Israel. And, you know, at best, there's willful ignorance of what's going on in the Palestinian territories, particularly Gaza. And at worst, it's the total disregard for the Palestinian life. So the the Trump administration has uh, at least said in its rhetoric a few points where it's leaving a few doors open, which they see as the potential for sweeteners or even have kind of floated a couple sweeteners for the Palestinians. One is what Natan mentioned before, the kind of ambiguity surrounding its position. It has said that it recognizes Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem, but says that the boundaries of that have to be negotiated, theoretically leaves open the door for Eastern Jerusalem to go to the Palestinians or some portion of it, um, although you know it never says that quite as explicitly. Um, and then we also have, of course, the deal of the century, the peace plan that the Trump administration has been working on since but well before uh, the December announcement um, and that we've seen little pieces of potentially leak here and there as trial balloons. We, we haven't, don't have much of a sense of, at least as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware. Um, how seriously should we be taking these sorts of avenues and openings? And, and what do you make of the fact that the Trump administration is still incorporating them into its position, um, even though, as you note, Several of its other stances are, are kind of longstanding objectives of supporters of Israel and often people who are uh, have a kind of a max support and more maximalist position of Israeli sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's clear, as both you and Natan have said, that you know there is room for the opening of a U.S. embassy to the Palestinian territories in East Jerusalem. That's a legal possibility for this administration to do that. I mean, I would 
be shocked. Uh, that does, I mean, it's a good, if we're trying to find a silver lining, I mean, I guess the good sense is that a future administration, it'll be easier for a future administration should they choose to do that. And there's been some interesting analysis out there saying that what this has actually done is sort of push the hand of a future administration to do that. An administration may not have thought about doing that, but given that, you know, now the hand has been forced and that we've opened the embassy in, Jeruz- in West Jerusalem, it makes it easier to do it in East Jerusalem. Um Again, I don't think that's going to happen at all. Uh, and, you know, I think it's it's just really clear that in my mind, this has killed the peace process, which was already pretty much dead anyway. But regardless of if the Trump administration were to offer an embassy in East Jerusalem, there's no way the Palestinians would or could or should, in my mind, take any sort of deal that they have to offer. I think they've clearly play their cards, as I mentioned earlier, clearly are on the side of Israel. And they've already used up their main point of leverage with the Israelis, which is moving the embassy. So what are they going to possibly get from the Israelis at this point that's going to make any sort of palatable deal to the Palestinians? Now, I think one of the most interesting parts around this decision is this real focus around President Trump himself and a lot of the speeches and comments around the opening of the ceremony. It's a lot of celebration of his vision, of his bravery uh, in taking the step, which as Natan mentioned is something a lot of presidential candidates have alluded to, but few have actually followed through on. Um, uh, a lot of people have come out and said very uh, congratulatory things. We've seen, I believe, the Jerusalem soccer team rename itself the Trump something uh, and references one of the Jerusalem soccer teams. One of, I'm sorry, one of the Jerusalem <laughs> soccer teams, of course. I've no doubt there are many. Uh, also references to naming a new diplomatic district Trump Town and naming the uh, you know transportation stop closest to I think the old city in Jerusalem, the Trump stop. Um, all these efforts to appeal to him very personally. How much of this is a personally driven decision, and how much of it is 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 a product of a policy process we would expect to see going into these sorts of major decisions? I mean, I don't think that this is a one man decision. I think this does represent the position of an administration and of a U.S. Congress. I mean, at least part of U.S. Congress. Uh, and I think we mentioned earlier, you know, the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995. This has been the policy of Congress for a long time, and you saw some members of Congress, including Senator Lindsey Graham, say, you know. This has been U.S. policy for a long time. Finally, someone is saying this out loud. You know, there's been this fight and you and I were both in the State Department dealing with these sorts of issues. There's this fight between Congress who believes policy is one thing and, you know, the executive who believes it's a different thing uh, and trying to figure out what that means. Um, I was in the office where we had to actually write this embassy waiver every six months and it, you know, became a joke. Oh, it's waiver time. Let's go. You know, there was never any thought put into that because it was so clear that the executive branch's position was that Jerusalem is a final status issue to be negotiated between the parties. Uh, so in the view of Congress, all they've done now is say, no, this was our policy all along and you've just confirmed it. Um, but on you know naming all this stuff, Trump town, Trump train station, whatever, um, I think Bibi is playing right into Trump's hand. He knows how to manipulate Trump. I mean, he knows exactly what Trump's, Trump wants, which is to have things named after him and to be seen as this hero. So I think in that sense, Bibi is is very smart and very calculating in how he's managing this American president, not just in the embassy decision, but sort of overall in the U.S.-Israel relationship. Absolutely. And he certainly has become a more frequent guest on Fox and Friends, as we saw in the lead up to uh, the withdrawal from the Iran deal recently. Um, certainly the case. I will make one lawyer note here as a former State Department lawyer. I'll note about the Jerusalem Embassy Act is that the U.S. executive branch's longstanding position, at least, is that good parts of that were unconstitutional. Uh, and certainly after the 2015 Supreme Court ruling in Zivotofsky v. Kerry, which related to a different piece of legislation regarding passports and how Jerusalem is treated, the case for that's been strengthened. So I put that out there just to note, certainly, I think you're right, it's a strong 
statement of congressional policy. Whether it's legally binding, the actual act I think is a much bigger question and I would say probably was not. But um, that would have been a dispute that at this point we'll never see the light of day in a U.S. courtroom. Um, Khaled, let me let me turn to you on all of this because now we've seen a lot about these sorts of perspectives about this embassy move, but people who are affected by it most directly and for whom it's most relevant in a lot of ways uh, are, you know, residents of East Jerusalem, um, Palestinians who are most affected about seeing their claims most reflected in this change in the U.S. position. How is the Palestinian Authority treated and engaged with this sort of shift in U.S. policy? Uh, and also, you know, the extent to which there's been any sort of shift or move or risk of a shift in the broader international community's approach to these sorts of issues? Um, I will uh, answer that, but but before I do, I just wanted to address this um, uh, maybe as by way of context, the this issue of nuance and ambiguity in uh, the administration's approach. Um, it's true, as Natan said, that um, the administration did not explicitly uh, endorse a unified Jerusalem, or didn't say one thing one way or the other, East Jerusalem or West Jerusalem which uh, did not define Jerusalem. Um, but I think a lot of, I think the tendency is to see that as a plus. Um, I tend to see it as a, as a negative because ambiguity generally favors realities on the ground. Um, I mean, you can't divorce um, uh, rhetorical statements and po- uh, political statements from, from power dynamics. Uh, so it, it does. The, in this case, I think the ambiguity plays into the hands of the most powerful party, which is Israel, which controls all of Jerusalem. And so, since we've seen uh, in this administration, even more than other administrations, real reluctance to apply even the most minimal amount of pressure or minimal amount of criticism um, to Israel, it's hard to see how. Uh, the administration would resist anything that the Israelis do unilaterally in Jerusalem. Um, and, and so this was, I think, very much a victory for the hard right in Israel. Um, and it's not a coincidence that they are jubilant, that they are triumphalist in their in their rhetoric, because they know, um, you know, that old adage, which is, not true about possession being nine tenths of the law. It's not nine tenths of the law, but it's nine tenths of reality, if not a hundred percent. And so Israel is in, Israel is uh, is uh, the uh, effective sovereign in, in all of Jerusalem, uh, and and I think it was it's inevitable that Palestinians would see this as the United States essentially handing Jerusalem over, um, and I think that's really how much of the international community um, sees it as well. For the Palestinians, I think it was a wake-up call because up until that moment, the Palestinian leadership at least was willing to put as good a face as they could on the Trump administration's uh, peace efforts uh, with Jason Greenblatt and with Jared Kushner. Um, They were talking about the potential for historic peace and or historic opportunity for peace and so on. Um, and, you know, despite a lot of, you know, internal reservations that they may have had, the Trump's announcement really pulled the rug out from underneath uh, Mahmoud Abbas and, and his leadership because he had, um, he had really banked on or at least had decided that I'm going to do everything I can to be in the good graces of, of this administration and, and see what I can get. 
Um, and uh, he not only got the door slammed in his face, but uh, the Jerusalem Declaration really basically ended a PLO strategy of more than three decades uh, in which uh, the United States was, you know, they were banking on an American-led peace process. And so the Jerusalem announcement really killed that. Um, so it wasn't only that they killed hopes for peace in this moment, it's that they they really sort of eviscerated the entire PLO diplomatic strategy. Um, notwithstanding whatever moves they make at the UN, these are mostly tactics, but for the most part, the PLO has been banking on uh, the eventuality that the United States would someday deliver Israel, meaning compel Israel in some form or another through positive or negative inducements to end its occupation and allow a Palestinian state. Um, and so it was it was like a, a, a kick in the gut uh, for, uh, for the Palestinian leadership. And so since then, they've really been scrambling. Um, they don't have an alternative strategy. Um, there is talk about the, the UN and various international initiatives and joining uh, this agency or that agency, but but these are, you know, at least up until now, have been mostly uh, tactical. And at the end of the day, they don't impact realities on the ground. You know, joining, um, you know, the WTO is not going to uh, fix the situation in Gaza or end the occupation in, in East Jerusalem or the West Bank. Uh, it's not going to remove settlements or uh, it's not going to have an impact on uh, people's day-to-day -day lives. And so um, there is a, it really put the Palestinian leadership in a bind because on the one hand, they can't go back to uh, an American-led uh, process. Um, and at the same time, they don't really have a, a credible alternative. Uh, and at the very same moment, you've got um, these protests in Gaza and, and Hamas sort of stealing the, the agenda in terms of the, their domestic politics. Uh, and so they're, they're sort of, um, uh, you know, triply uh, embattled, um, if, uh, if there is such an expression. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it's a very valuable perspective. And, and you mentioned this, these tactical moves that the Palestinian authority or Palestinian leadership, I should say, probably more broadly than just the PA, has been making in regards to the international community, outreach, tactical maneuvers in regards to international institutions, international law other countries outside the United States, uh, how have they built on or tried to, uh, you know, look to the international community to react to this? Have they been satisfied? Have they been uh, disappointed by the community? I asked both, I guess, at the international level and then also at the regional level, of course. We have Jordan, which has a very close historical relationship and practical relationship with the Palestinians. Um, many states in the Middle East certainly rhetorically support the Palestinians, although the level of actual support, I think, has waned over the years. We've seen Turkey take a kind of strong rhetorical role. What is the international kind of reaction to this been, and how has that intersected with the Palestinians? Uh, strategy looking forward. You mean international reaction to the embassy move or to... To the embassy move, yeah, and to this kind of shift in U.S. policy. Yeah, I mean, the the international reaction has generally been, um, I guess, uh, theoretically supportive of the Palestinian position, and, and if you want to break it down in terms of, you know, camps. Uh, most of the international community, including most of Western Europe, um, is opposed to uh, the move, and they've said so um, openly, uh, the Canadians, um, uh, Western Europe, uh, they have generally been uh, opposed to this, and, and they've said that. 
Um, and certainly Arab states, at least rhetorically, have had to um, have had to oppose it. You know, Egypt, which has a very close working relationship uh, with uh, with Israelis, particularly on security in the Sinai and and other uh, areas, um, was the one who initiated the the resolution and in, in the Security Council. Uh, immediately after the announcement by the Trump administration that they were going to move the embassy, so there is a need for, if no for no other reason than their own domestic politics, to appear defiant uh, of Washington and um, and in sort of at least feign solidarity with the Palestinians. But the reality, as you uh, said, is um, is that there uh, there is a there is a lack of follow through in general. Um, the Palestinians right now, they feel very much uh, isolated and alone. Their usual um, support base, their traditional support base, which is the Arab world, including Arab leaders, is not reliable um, and very often absent and in some cases maybe actively working against them. Uh, and, and even their, you know, beyond, you know, in the next circle of support, uh, let's say developing countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America, there are changes there, um, and there's it's a much more of a mixed bag uh, as well. And so it is ironic that some of the most consistent support for Palestinian positions diplomatically is really coming from Western Europe uh, more than it is from their traditional allies historically. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, 
they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, that's actually a good point. And Sarah, I want to turn this back to you for a quick point here. You know, Khaled has brought out this point that we've seen a divide between the United States and European positions. To some extent, there's always been a gap, um, but there's still at least an effort to coordinate, uh, certainly during the peace process uh, moves in the last, since the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. We've seen a, a fair amount of coordination with European allies. How big a fissure is, has this move of the embassy and the shift in the U.S. position on sovereignty over Jerusalem introduced into this sort of relationship? Has it really hindered sort of cooperation or is there still an effort to work together on points of agreement, even if there are maybe fewer and further between than they had been. Yeah, I don't think this has necessarily caused a bigger fissure between the U.S. and Europeans. Uh, I think the bigger fissure is the JCPOA and the Iran deal. Um, but I think this, you know, the the idea that the Europeans are, will still work with the United States or vice versa 
to I mean, the, the stated goal of the United States still is to get a peace agreement. So they both sort of have that same goal. Uh, they just have a very different way of approaching it, I think, right now. Um, so I don't think this will have any sort of lasting damage to that relationship or will really necessarily impede the ability for them to work together any more so than just all the other sort of issues with this administration already have. Okay, interesting. Now let's let's go. We've talked a lot about the embassy move, which is one of the big events that's happened this past week. But let's shift focus to uh, the protests that are happening in Gaza. Um, Khalid, can I, can I ask you to just give us an introduction or for the listener a little bit? What is the background of these protests? Obviously, they predate the embassy move. They've been going on since I think March 30th, towards the end of March at least, and were always intended to run up until uh, May 15th. Um, but you know, how much are they a reaction to the embassy move? How much is this time a coincidence? Uh, and how have they interacted with these two developments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to a large extent, the timing is probably more coincidental. Um, uh, the, as you said, the protests were launched on March 30th, but the idea um, has been sort of percolating uh, among civil society folks inside Gaza for several years. Um, and it was only recently that um, that sort of Hamas saw uh, an opportunity to capitalize on. And so they allowed the protests uh, to happen. They were initiated by civil society people in Gaza and um, uh, not under any particular political faction. Um, but they were very clearly not only greenlighted by Hamas, which rules Gaza, but um, in a certain sense appropriated uh, by them. They they saw that as an opportunity maybe to deflect from their own uh, domestic criticism for certain failings in, in terms of governing Gaza and the really miserable conditions that exist there and the fact that they don't really have concrete answers or solutions to Gaza's many problems. So it was an opportunity sort of to play the populist card to to steal the agenda. Um, and that's, that's essentially what, uh, what they've done. And so, um, you know, Hamas um, has, has been able to capitalize on those protests in ways that, that directly threaten the, the leadership uh, in the West Bank, which has mostly been relegated to the, to the role of a bystander. Let me push you on that point a little bit further, because certainly for a legal audience, it's, it's actually been a main point of contention. So the Israeli government, we know in late April, filed with an Israeli court in response to a petition by a number of civil society groups, uh, if I recall correctly, um, their legal justification for their response. And a big part of their legal argument is the idea that these protests are an instrument of Hamas being used to advance their strategic objectives, uh, even though they acknowledge that many of the participants may not be acting as co-belligerents of Hamas. They're nonetheless, Hamas is in control, advancing the strategic objectives. Um, and then uh, on top of that, they're essentially classifying all of their response as part of this broader armed conflict with Hamas as a legal kind of categorization matter for which set of rules apply. Um, how much does that ring true to how your understanding of how these events were organized, how they're led, how they're structured? I mean, does Hamas have a strong level of strategic control or tactical control, or is it more of a political, you know, green light 
without that sort of level of finite, finite control, if you will, on the ground? Yeah, I think it's a little bit more uh, vague uh, in terms of their control. They are they are major players in Gaza. Obviously, they are the effective authority in Gaza. So, if they didn't want the marches to happen, they wouldn't happen. Um, but they're also a a political movement with a very large constituency. Um, they're the largest in Gaza, certainly, uh, and at least the second largest in terms of the entire. Uh, uh, body politic of Palestinians, so wouldn't be hard for them. And they're generally very good at at retail politics and and getting people to turn out for events. Uh, and so it would not surprise me if uh, a disproportionate number of protesters were uh, were somehow affiliated with Hamas because they have the grassroots organization in place to be able to. Um, to bring people uh, to to the march in this in a similar way to let's say the Tahrir Square protests in in Egypt, where the Brotherhood, when they joined those part marches, they suddenly became much much bigger and and sort of more sustained. So uh, it does have pull, but it is not necessarily pulling the strings. Um, and from a legal standpoint, the the fact I mean, even if all the people who were killed and all the protesters were Hamas uh, sympathizers or members or card-carrying members, that doesn't really justify from an international law standpoint the use of deadly force uh, against uh, people who are essentially uh, unarmed. Most of those people who have been killed uh, were unarmed regardless of their their political affiliations. So um, it's a very dangerous thing, I think, to conflate uh, first of all, Palestinians in Gaza with Hamas, which there's a tendency to do, particularly in in, in Israel, um, but also uh, to conflate Hamas with uh, terrorists. If if you know Hamas bureaucrat, for example, an employee, a civil servant, or a police officer, um, we've seen this in past uh, conflicts where they would become uh, legitimate targets in the view of Israeli military leaders. Uh, because they are part of the Hamas political structure, um, even if they are not um, combatants or involved in, in any armed activity. Uh, so that's, I think, a very dangerous uh, slippery slope to go down. Absolutely. You mentioned um, you know, that Hamas is, is one Palestinian leadership organization. Obviously, the other big one is the Palestinian Authority governing in the West Bank, but lacking control in the Gaza Strip. Um, since 2005 or shortly thereafter, uh, in what is what has its been reaction to these protests, and how does the Palestinian Authority Hamas relationship feed into how the protests have evolved and the issues they're trying to address? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic because um, privately, I think they're very con- they were very concerned when the protests started because here's yet another initiative in Gaza which is beyond their reach uh, that. Um, uh, that they can neither contain nor capitalize on. Uh, and, and so that was concerning. And then, of course, when Hamas was able to capitalize on it, um, uh, they, they were very uh, displeased and I think privately wanted the protests to sort of go away. But the minute there were casualties and they, were, they happened very early on, um, publicly, they have to express solidarity with the protesters and with the protests and call for official days of mourning. Uh, and so there is a kind of um, schizophrenia on the part of the leadership where they don't like the protests for 
essentially parochial political reasons, um, but they can't really distance themselves from them. They have to at least officially embrace them um, to be relevant because it is their only relevance. I mean, all of this is happening miles away from the PA in, in Ramallah, and uh, they can't control events. All they can do is uh, somehow try to insert their relevance wherever they can. Natal, let, let me turn back to you a little bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about this Israeli response. I'd be curious about, um, as a native Jerusalemite, and um, about what's your sense of how the Israeli public is viewing these protests, and perhaps not the Israeli public, perhaps Israeli policymakers, particularly in this government right now. Um, I mentioned this court filing where they are, at least as a matter of legal argument, trying to frame it as part of a broader Hamas-Israel armed conflict. Um, but what is your sense about how it's actually being perceived by, I guess, the broader Israeli public and, and the extent to which that actually carries through? Well, it's a complex um, picture. On the one hand, I think the baseline is one of, um, difference is the wrong word, but there's a strong sense of indignation among Israelis about the whole Gaza issue, one that leads, I think, to Israelis being uh, quite, it's very hard for Israelis, I think, to to recognize just the, the humanity of two million people on the other side of the border, and the fact, as Khaled said, that Hamas is not the same thing as Gaza, um, and it's it's a tragic situation. It wasn't used to be the case. Gaza, you know, the border between Gaza and Israel used to be a rope that one uh, reservist uh, would hold and put down whenever any car came by. That's changed dramatically since Hamas took over the Gaza Strip. Um, Israelis view the question basically as one is, can Israel have a pre-67 border? It's a bit similar to the question of Jerusalem. Can Israel have legitimate borders? And Israelis view their withdrawal from the Gaza Strip um, and the subsequent attack beyond that border as sort of proof that they cannot or they, they will not in the eyes of the Palestinians. In particular, with these demonstrations, they're called a march of return, and, and they're intended to cross the border and return refugees or the descendants into, into Israel proper. And so for Israelis, it's very easy to picture this as both a proof of concept that no matter what they withdraw from or where they withdraw from, they will always be pursued with conflict. And secondly, that this is not, not about the Gaza Strip or occupation or Palestinian state, but about Israel proper. The outcome is that Israelis have been, I think, uh, very heavy-handed with the response um, on the border itself with tragic outcome. And in the Israeli public, it's very easy to sell that. So I wish I could tell you there's outrage in Israel about how could this happen. There predominantly is not. There's predominantly a sense that um, the Gazans have this coming. Uh, they elected Hamas, no matter you know what the consequence or when that happened. And they've chosen to fight Israel. Um, and that is partly true. Hamas is choosing to fight Israel across a border. And is trying to storm that border and is making demands across that border, uh, all ostensibly in the name of Palestinian independence, which would in theory entail a border that could be closed and nothing would necessarily have to pass through that. But in the reality today, what we see is, is tactically on the ground a very strong response and not much uh, introspection, I think, of Israelis about what that means. You asked about the leadership too. There is, there's a split there too. Um, Israelis, especially in the security establishment, are keenly aware of just how bad things are in the Gaza Strip right now. And I think it's important to, to, to speak about this a little bit. It's not just that they've been bad for a decade. They have been. They've also, the situation in Gaza has gotten worse in recent past, mostly because of actions 
by the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, which has cut off some uh, funding, very important funding, and the United States, which has cut off funding for UNRWA, which is a very important source both of uh, simple cash but also provision of uh, services in the Gaza Strip. It's a very delicate situation to begin with, and it's worse now. Ironically, the Israelis are not usually the most careful about you know making sure about what gets into Gaza. They've not been keen on some of the things that the Palestinian Authority have done, and certainly the security establishment has been trying to warn the politicians that this is um, this could detonate any moment and drag Israel into another war. Even on the border itself, there there were those inside the the military that wanted a much softer hand or one that would allow for those among the protesters who are unarmed to be arrested, for example, as opposed to shot. Um, this was shut down by the political uh, echelon. After the worst of the day, just a few days ago, um, there has been a decision that that sniper fire would require a higher level of authority, etc. And it really sort of begs the question of why that didn't happen weeks ago. Right now, we've seen, though, the Egyptians mediate between Hamas and Israel, and we've seen a quieting down of uh, things. Partly, apparently, there was a threat towards Hamas itself. Israel threatened Hamas leaders, and, and they backed down. But the short, the short of it, your answer is that among the Israeli public, there's a very strong sense of indignance about Gaza, not without some cause, I think, but on the strategic level, in a sense that this is not about occupation, it's about Israel proper. But at the tactical level, when you look at what it does, and with the 60 dead in just one day, um, it results in a long-standing indifference to Palestinian life in Gaza and to the situation in Gaza, which I think is wrong and is also also counterproductive for Israel itself. It's also not good for Israel. It's terrible for Palestinians. It's not good for Israel either, I think. Sarah, well, let me turn it to you on this point about the, kind of the U.S. response. Uh, you know, the fact that this protest, this aspect of the protest coincided with the U.S. Embassy opening, for better or for worse, certainly put it on the United States radar in regards to public opinion, CNN, uh, MSNBC coverage, which gave us the famous split screen that I described kind of in the, in the introduction of the kind of juxtaposition there. Um, how has the Trump administration uh, received and responded to this uh, increased scrutiny and awareness? Uh, and how have other kind of political elements and policy elements in the United States really responded? And to what extent do we see this perhaps shifting or requiring a political or policy shift from what might have been before this level of attention was brought to it? Yeah, so I think, unfortunately, I mean, this all happened in this perfect storm. So you have the embassy, you have the 70th anniversary of the State of Israel, the 70th anniversary of the Nakhma, and you have Ramadan, which we didn't mention, that also started right at the same time. Um, so I think the the idea that this was going to be big news, it was sort of destined for that, no matter kind of what happened, all of these events happening at once is a big story. Uh, the way the administration has handled it is to largely ignore it. So if you look at the statements from the White House, the statements from um, UN uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley did make a statement saying that she believed basically that Israel acted in an appropriate manner. Uh, there was a lot of pushback against that from the press and from others. And if you read through the press briefing at the State Department that took place on May 15th, um, there's this you know really lengthy back and forth between the journalists and between the State Department spokesperson saying do you think that you need to ask Israel to exercise restraint? And the spokesperson refuses to respond. He just, you know, that's very typical of these things anyway, but back and forth, refusing to make any sort of statement, just saying, we regret the loss of life. We regret the loss of life. 
And this, I think, you know, is reflective of the fact that the administration is, first of all, not willing to go further than the Israelis themselves. And also the fact that the, all of these things, and again, you can speak to this probably better than I can, but these things have legal implications, like whether or not the U.S. says that Israel acted disproportionately or you know various things, these things matter. This, the way the U.S. government frames this matters. And I think the State Department and the White House haven't really figured out what the response is. Largely, they've been ignoring it unless they've been sort of pushed into the corner and forced to respond to it. So obviously, it's a, it's a difficult situation that we're facing, and we're seeing this confluence of this kind of perfect storm, I think, as you described it, Sarah, between the embassy opening and uh, the JCPOA, the Gaza protests. Um, you know, how does this all come in? How do you all see this coming together in regards to a way out, a way towards a better outcome, or even what should a better, what a better outcome look like? I guess in the near term, that'd be achievable. I guess what I'm, I, I'll boil it down to this essentially is, you know, looking out there at the range of actors and the kind of challenges that we see people facing in this uh, important slice of the world right now. What advice would you give to a particular actor, or a particular policymaker that you think could lead to some sort of policy improvement? Um, uh, Khaled, I'll start with you if that's all right. I know this is kind of a, a far-reaching question, so I apologize. Uh, what advice? Um, I mean, as as uh, Sarah and others already said, I mean, the peace process is is dead. I mean, and frankly, it was dead before Trump arrived, and the Jerusalem move really kind of put the final nail in the coffin. Um and so I, you know, there isn't a lot to go back to. And in, in that sense, I think also in terms of whatever may or may not be in Trump's peace plan is mostly an academic exercise because the Palestinians won't negotiate on the basis of any Trump plan at this point. Um, you know, and uh, so what would I advise um, in this context is um, something that seems so distant um, and yet so basic and and logical, uh, but it seems completely irrational or not irrational, but absurd, um, which is to go back to the basic terms of reference of what this uh, conflict uh, and, and how to resolve it is, is all about. UN Resolution 242, ending the Israeli occupation that began in 1967, an independent Palestinian state with a capital in East Jerusalem. Um, those are things that need to be stated explicitly. And any administration uh, plan or uh, initiative that does not declare those uh, as goals um, is not worth the paper it's printed on. Um, and so essentially that's what I would advise. Um, as hard as that is in this context to imagine. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's very simple and straightforward. Uh, but still feels like fantasy in this context. Sarah, I'll turn to you next. Sure. I mean, I think for the Trump administration, what I would say regarding the Jerusalem decision is to sort of move on, that you you have your win, you move the embassy, at least symbolically, enough. Let's kind of move on to other issues. Um, and I think, you know, regarding the Gaza protests, I don't know if this is advice or just maybe advice, some, some sort of sort of speculation of one thing that could happen out of this. Um, you know, we tend to forget that there's a whole other world out there besides the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there's also the this possibility of the, the Trump summit with North Korea. You know, one opportunity is to 
see what happens there and possibly start a dialogue with Hamas. Um, this The one positive thing I can say about this president is that he is a risk taker and he's unconventional. And one opportunity that might there might be to, you know, at least try to open up the dialogue there to help alleviate the issues that are happening in Gaza right now, the dramatic suffering, the humanitarian situation. I mean, these protests, even if they're quiet today, they're not going to end. The situation's only getting worse and worse. Um, so maybe this president will be able to actually do things other presidents were too afraid to do. Natana, I'll let you close us out. Well, I don't have any brilliant ideas, of course, but I would say that when I, if I were advising the U.S. on this, I would say a difficult thing, giving up on the grand idea of the ultimate deal uh, for the time being. I think the terms of reference have to be more or less what Khaled referenced, but it's not achievable at the moment. And we're going back again and again to this same mistake, which is this thought of either you get capital peace, sort of capital, all capital letters peace, or you or you're bust, and therefore you can't even mitigate the worst kind of crises. I think peace should definitely still be the goal, and should be a two-state solution, and should be said very clearly. But we're not going to achieve it soon, even if it wasn't Trump, even if it was Obama, he tried. Um, and instead, there should be a much more realistic approach that thinks what can be done in the shorter term, not necessarily in small steps. That doesn't mean necessarily putting Band-Aids on things. It means thinking strategically about what would not prevent a two-state solution down the road. It means thinking quite boldly. And as Sarah said, Trump is a risk taker, and it's quite possible that he obviously has, he's won Israel's love probably till the end of his term. He's very popular in Israel at the moment. It's not just the soccer team. Um, and that's probably not going away. And Trump, even in his tweet, when he sort of said, I took Jerusalem off the table, but Israel would have paid a price. Um, this is a time where you can think more creatively. And I think you'll find that even in Israel, there are many people who would be very happy if the United States were more constructively involved and could help with many different things in the region um, and not just make these symbolic moves that give Trump a few more plaques with his name somewhere. Um, so on the Palestinian-Israeli front, I think it's that. It's it's getting away from this capital P, peace or bust, and instead having a clear-eyed view of what is possible without losing sight of the strategic. And secondly, I would just say this has to be in the context, as Sarah said, of the regional question. Um, there's so much else going on. There's um, JCPOA, but it's also just Iran in Syria, and there's the possibility of Hezbollah joining a conflict between Israel and Iran. There's a lot else happening. And what is needed from the U.S., I think, is much more than symbolic moves. It's much more than JCPOA or certainly the question of Jerusalem. It's tactical, serious work by diplomats um, that, and, and by the military and by the intelligence community that are able to do things on the ground, solve small problems that don't get any Nobel Prizes. And I hope, wish that the United States gets more involved in a lot of these different things in a constructive way. Um, but again, give, but that would entail giving up on certainly the ultimate deal. Well, this is certainly a difficult situation that many people are facing, um, a difficult set of issues, but I think we've all benefited from your insights today. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to tweet or share the Lawfare Podcast on Twitter or Facebook. And if you haven't yet, give it a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you may have found us. As always, our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.